from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Mr President, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. Um, it's an enormous pleasure and an honour to have been invited to come here because I am so ex. But uh, it's always wonderful still to feel wanted. Uh, now, I am 62, but at the ripe old age of 30, I decided to learn to fly. So I went to Florida, uh, where the weather and the culture made the costs of learning to fly so much cheaper, and I had a really good time. Uh, such a good time, in fact, that I came back to the UK and started an aerobatic course at Biggin Hill. I'm afraid I didn't stay the course for various reasons. Uh, one reason was that I discovered quite early on, early on that barrel rolls and breakfast were incompatible <laughs> with each other. Uh, I couldn't, as an increasingly busy barrister, really spare the time. And therefore, that meant that I was pretty useless at it. Uh, in fact, I was downright dangerous. I well remember the shouts of anger as I taxied across an active runway just as another aeroplane was about to take off. And that was the day on which I hung up my goggles. Uh, I was, in fact, a worse pilot than Sir Thomas Sopwith. Uh, he crashed his first aeroplane at Brooklands on the day it arrived. Um, he once said, we used to crash a lot, but when it was all over, we nearly always just stood up shook the wreckage off, and walked away. Um, anyway, he, like me, soon gave up flying. Uh, he turned instead to designing and building aircraft. Uh, in the days when there were clearly no spin doctors. We've seen the kitten upstairs, but how would you nowadays sell to the Ministry of Defence an aeroplane called a pup? Um, and how would, you, how would you persuade a self-respecting pilot uh, to learn to fly in something called a camel? Because a camel has been described as a horse designed by a committee. Anyway, um, the camel was a remarkable aircraft, or rather, because that aircraft, or rather the pilots in them, shot down more Germans, including... Uh, Baron Manfred von Richthofen than any other aeroplane during the First World War. It wasn't very easy to fly. Uh, in fact, it was extremely difficult. Uh, 413 pilots died during combat in camels. 385 of them perished uh, from non-combat-related causes as they lost control and crashed their machines into the ground. I think nowadays that would be regarded as contrary to the Health and Safety at Work Act. Um, but I'm not going to talk about flying because, as I think we've established, I am not very good at it. I'm going to talk about defence more generally. Um, and I will start, if I may, with nuclear weapons. 
one of the reasons for starting with that is that reason, recently I spoke at a RUSI conference on uh, nuclear issues, and I thought it was sensible at that conference to remind ourselves what uh, uh, nuclear weapons were for, an important fundamental question, I hope you might agree. Um, in the early days of the Second World War, clearly nuclear weapons were the ultimate weapon. The issue was which side got one first. And the one that did and was prepared to use it uh, would get a major advantage. Now, there is a dispute about whether the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki actually caused the Japanese to surrender or whether they needed a reason to do so anyway, but it clearly played a part. And then nuclear weapons became the standoff weapon in the Cold War, two power blocks uh, confronting each other with the expectation of mutually assured destruction. But neither side mad, both perfectly sane. And the NATO side then began to rely on nuclear weapons as the tripwire if the Soviet Union, uh, widely though possibly wrongly regarded as conventionally superior uh, to the West, attacked a NATO country, then NATO could respond with nuclear weapons. And so NATO didn't have to spend so much on conventional weapons. So nuclear weapons formed NATO's defense on the cheap. And then the Cold War ended. Uh, because in the West we had a better economic system, we won the economic war. And we were able to outspend the Soviet Union, which collapsed economically rather than militarily. So we all breathed a sigh of relief, and we decided the world was now a safer place. Laughable now when you look back, but uh, that's what we thought. And we took the peace dividend. Having already been spending less on conventional defense than arguably we should have been. We failed to appreciate at the time. I know I certainly failed to appreciate, but I think we all failed to appreciate that as the world broke into separate, unstable factions, some of them driven by re religious ideologies that seemed to prefer death to life, nuclear deterrence became less effective. And as the knowledge of how to build nuclear weapons and build powerful weapons of all other sorts as well, including but not limited to nuclear weapons, spread, the world was becoming exponentially more vulnerable and less secure. We in the developed world increased our dependence on technology and at the same time invented brilliant new ways of attacking that very technology on which we increasingly relied. More vulnerability. And we carried on cutting our spending on defense. It may seem odd, but in the days of mutually assured destruction, we weren't mad. I think we are now. And now we're going into an SDSR in which already we're cutting a further 500 million pounds from defense in this year. 
In 2006, the NATO governments agreed to have a target of spending 2% of their GDPs on defense. Not many have managed to do so, but the UK has. And over the last few months, uh, there has been a debate about whether we will continue to do so and whether we should. And so now for the next few months, there will be discussions about redefining our 2% to include in the sum things like the intelligence agencies. Uh, and I see that Howard Wildon is here, and he wrote earlier on this week about that very issue. Um, the point is, redefining what we mean by 2% will cut no ice with our friends, and it will cut no ice with our enemies. Uh, the simple point is that all NATO countries should simply use the same criteria and be clear about it. In discussions before, the, uh, before this evening's formalities, though, it was suggested to me, and I think probably with good reason, that that's not as easy to do as we might think. You could argue that 2% was an irrelevant, potentially damaging, and meaningless target. And as someone said to me today, oh, for God's sake, ba stop banging on about it. And on the other hand, you could argue that it was symbolically profoundly important and the only real quantifiable measure that we have as to whether we're giving enough priority to defense. And I personally believe that both of these arguments have something to be said for them. Uh, but I do find it embarrassing when we make both arguments in the same sentence. And I find it embarrassing when we try to persuade our colleagues in Europe that it is an essential measure, but our voters at home that it is irrelevant. Uh, there's an element of breach of faith in that. Recently, Anders Fogh Rasmussen described the UK government as the cheerleader at the NATO summit in September last year for the principle that all NATO countries ought to move towards a minimum of 2% of GDP being spent on defense. And indeed, the UK was the cheerleader. What I want to examine now is precisely why we were the cheerleader. Um, it seems to me that there could have been three reasons for making such an argument. And I hope you will listen to these reasons very carefully because I want some more because at the moment uh, I don't really understand them. Um, first reason. Uh, well, let's, by the way, let's start by discounting the unworthy thought that the government might have been arguing for 2% merely in order to highlight for sordid short-term electoral reasons our leadership in defense. Um, a wholly unworthy thought, as I know you will agree, and one which, if it was indeed the reason, uh, came back to bite them. Um, so let's abandon that as a motive. Um, my three reasons are these. First, we could have been saying, let the other European countries do more so that we can do less. Second, we could have been saying, we in Europe need to do more so the Americans will find NATO continuing to be relevant. Otherwise, they won't. 
And third, we could have been saying, we know that there are unmet defense needs which could be addressed by our NATO partners spending more on defense. Now, as I said, there may be other reasons, and if there are, I hope you will tell me what they are, uh, but probably uh, the UK was arguing, as it was in September, for a mixture of those three reasons. The problem is, so far as I can see, that none of those reasons is in the least bit attractive. Let's go for the first one. Let the other Europeans do more so that we can do less. Do we actually want to do less? Do we want to scale back our contribution to world security? The government's rhetoric, in my view rightly, is all about increasing our role in the world, not reducing it. I remember when we had an ambition to be a force for good, and in my opinion, this government still has that ambition. So the first reason doing more, we can do less if the other Europeans do more, is not a strong one. Second, do we want to tie the United States more into NATO? Well, clearly we do. But the experience of the last few months, as commented on by Ash Carter, the Defense Secretary, and by President Obama, seems to have been that the words used in the NATO summit, when followed by a failure during our election campaign to repeat a pledge to keep to 2%, followed by a further reduction of 500 million pounds in year for the defense budget, seems to have, if anything, made the relationship with the United States less stable rather than more so. Uh, we've given the impression that we cannot keep a promise that we made only a few months ago. So that reason is not a strong one. And the third argument, we could have identified unmet defense needs on which our European partners, but not we, should be spending more. Well, forgive my putting it like this, but that's rubbish. In, uh, in these days of everything being affected by everything else, of the interconnection of all things, and particularly the interconnection of threats, that is inherently implausible. If there are insecurities uh, which are not being addressed, then those insecurities will be our insecurities just as much as they are those of another country, and it is the duty of UK governments to address them. Defense is a national responsibility of government at least as much as it is an international duty of our alliance. So, in my view, while the UK's argument for 2% was welcome in the context of being an overdue expression of a determination to maintain our defense spending because the world has become a less stable place even since the 2% target was proposed and agreed, it is what I would regard as uh, motivated by woolly thinking. It may be true, in fact I think it is true, that our government had failed to work out precisely why it was arguing for 2%. And it may be true, I think it is true, 
that our failure thereafter to reassert the argument for 2% was embarrassing, but it is inescapably true that we, having put those arguments in Newport, having called on others to reach that target, it is a matter of honour for the UK government to deliver 2%, and not just this year, but for the foreseeable future. And I believe, um, maybe this is controversial, it's certainly unfashionable, I believe that this is an honourable government, and I believe uh, that it is honourable like most other UK governments of most other colours. So I believe that it will not go below 2%, but we must not go below 2%. Some will argue, however, that 2% is just a number. <clears throat> and of course it is a number. It could be 3%, it could be 7%. Um, but we note, by the way, that no government minister said as we went so far as to put 0.7% of GDP for overseas aid into statute law, no less. No government minister said that this was just a meaningless number. Okay, so let's uh, say it's a number. Those who are antipathetic to defense spending um, might say, well, we could easily meet the 2% by reducing the economic effectiveness by taking prostitution out of our GDP, uh, GDP figures. Uh, and so we could reduce GDP of the country. Uh, do you really want that? To which the correct answer is no, and in parentheses, don't be daft. Um, but the higher the GDP, the more you have to protect. And it's right that the defense of our assets and of our values and of our prosperity should rise in line with that prosperity. On the other hand, the chiefs of staff may say, let's assume that they will want more defense spending, I think they probably will, uh, they may say 2% is just a number uh, because the amount we need to spend on defense is whatever is required by the changing security assessment of the time uh, based on a comprehensive analysis of our strategic place in the world and the threats that we face. And there is a real risk that to stick to a target of 2% would make it a dangerous ceiling rather than a minimum. To which I believe the correct answer is, uh, well, yes, that's right, up to a point. Do remember, though, that we must, in this country, address the strategic threat of our debt, that defense that is unaffordable will not happen and would anyway be ineffective. Subject to that, though, I think you are right. And affordability can, in these circumstances, uh, be somewhat subjective. How much uh, does all of this matter? Some would say, I think, uh, France, for example, would argue uh, that actually 2%, any figure, is not the issue. What really matters is first whether you spend at least a quarter of your defense budget on equipment, because if you don't, then uh, you end up with lots of troops who can't be deployed because of equipment that is overmatched by the enemies 
and incompatible with that of your friends. And second, the extent to which you make that equipment at home or buy it off the shelf. In other words, are you preserving the capacity to equip your troops into the future? Both of those, I think, perfectly fair points. However, none of this addresses the even more fundamental question of what defense is for. It doesn't consider how the threats against us are changing and what our new vulnerabilities are. And I'm going to turn to that now because uh, no speech of mine would be complete without my end-of-the-world scenario. Having been described by the Times as making Eeyore look like a happy clappy type, I'm, <laughs> I'm determined not to let you down. So let me, let me give you the notion of the poor man's nuclear bomb. I'm not talking here about the poor state's nuclear bomb. I'm talking about the poor man's nuclear bomb because the speed of development in computers means that what used to be a technology available to states becomes available nowadays to individuals within a matter of years, probably on your mobile telephone. Um, now, here's the poor man's nuclear bomb. Uh, his name, this poor man, to be uncontroversial, is Mr. Arbuthnot. Uh, Mr. Arbuthnot is a bit of a whiz at computer hacking. So I'm clearly uh, not talking about myself here. Um, now, Mr. Arbuthnot has found a devastating way to plant a devastating virus in the computers of National Grid. Uh, he infects their system so that our electricity network collapses. Now, maybe you are confident that that could not happen. I only tell you that National Grid is coming under attack every minute of every day from states probing their defenses. And that the United States has cyber weapons against which the United States has no defense. Uh, now, maybe all of those weapons will be kept under lock and key. But to those of you sweet, naive young things that you are who believe that, all I can say in the words of Oliver Cromwell is, I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you may be mistaken. So here we have the collapse of the electricity network. That collapse has cascading consequences. There is no money. Because though all money uh, is no more than an idea built on confidence, money is the ultimate confidence trick. Uh, in this country, our money is electronic. And if there is no money, there's no social security payments, no hole-in-the-wall money machines. There is no food. Uh, we rely on just-in-time. We have three days' supply of food in this country. There is looting. And social order breaks down within hours. There are no communications. There is disruption to our chain of command. There is no water, no petrol, run by electric pumps. Um, and our nuclear reactors need to rely on backup generators to keep their cores cooled. But in a society falling apart because of the effects of cascade, for how long 
do you expect there to be an ordered and disciplined workforce able and willing to leave their families in order to supply the generators with diesel found from where? Mr. Arbuthnot is confident that it won't be very long. Now, I sense you may be feeling a little gloomy at this stage, so let's change the subject uh, to ballistic missile defense. Um, the United States is spending billions of dollars uh, on defending us all against ballistic missiles, and I'd like to say to the United States, thank you very much. It's true that countries like Iran and North Korea are themselves spending lots of money on extending the range of their missiles, so the USA may be getting value for money. Um, but if I were North Korea, and I had a few nuclear warheads, would I stick them on a ballistic missile, the most technologically challenging way of delivering a warhead or indeed anything else? I think I would not. I would put one in a container and put the container on a ship. Now, in the last parliament, uh, in evidence to us on the Defence Select Committee, uh, Lord Hennessy told us, in September 1950, a group commissioned by the Chiefs of Staff and working under the cover name of the Imports Research Committee, wonderful name, huh? uh, contemplated an atomic bomb in a Russian or Soviet bloc vessel in a British port, or the detonation of an atomic bomb in a suicide civil aircraft flying low over a key point. The committee concluded that Short of firing at every strange civil aircraft that appears over our shores, we know of no way of preventing an aircraft that sets out on such a mission from succeeding. Uh, Prime Minister Attlee was so briefed, as was Mr. Churchill, once returned to Downing Street by the Cabinet Secretary, Sir Norman Brooke. Brooke explained to Churchill that, I have taken no further initiative to raise the matter, since I myself believe that this is a risk against which we cannot at present take in normal times any effective precautions. Uh, now, if this did happen, container ship, strange civil, civil aircraft, against whom would we use our nuclear deterrent? Which, of course, by then, bear in mind, would have failed in its fundamental purpose. I once asked that question of an Israeli professor who said, that's easy. You retaliate against those you think might have done it on the, on the basis that they had it coming. Um, <laughs> he, he takes a robust view of nuclear deterrence. And if you're faced with an existential threat, are we to say that he is wrong? But none of this deals with what defense is for, at least not in any way that captures the imagination of the people who vote and who decide where money is to, to be spent. Uh, that is the public. How do we make them want to agree that money should be spent on defense in preference to on their schools and their hospitals? The point is that the public doesn't feel threatened. 
One could even say that to the extent that the public feels any threat at all, it blames those threats not on the armed forces, because they do, I think, deeply and strongly support the armed forces, but at least to a certain extent, they blame those threats on the uses to which the politicians of successive Western governments have put those armed forces. The public think, probably rightly, that 9-11 happened because Al-Qaeda objected to US troops being in Saudi Arabia. They think that Afghanistan happened because of 9-11. And then uh, it made things worse. And it currently looks like a failure waiting to turn into a catastrophe. Iraq, people never like that. Um, and they now feel, in my view actually wrongly, but that's irrelevant, they now feel that Iraq was based on a lie. Libya doesn't look like a howling success at the moment. Um, it is now a reason, of course, for our armed forces, uh, again, to pick up lots of potential asylum seekers uh, that our country doesn't want. At least we didn't end up in Syria, but the public feels that that was probably by mistake. Um, don't get me wrong. It's not that the country is pacifist. It's not. Uh, it just doesn't approve of wars where it doesn't see the point. Wars fought on behalf of factions or people whom it feels that our politicians haven't taken the trouble or don't have the expertise to understand. So against that background, why would the public want to spend more on defense? There was a time when the defense of our country inspired us. But now that the threats are all around us in our infrastructure, in our own computers, in our neighbor next door, that inspiration has evaporated. And actually, we in this country have even lost the value of inspiration. We even mistrust it. We, uh, it, it in our determination from our earliest school days to question everything, we have undermined our capacity to build, to respect, and hence to inspire. But I believe that what we have lost, we can regain. Um, there is a wonderful film, Invictus, in which Nelson Mandela is shown inspiring his largely white rugby team to win the World Cup in South Africa. And it revolves around the poem by William Ernest Henley, which includes the words, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. I find those words, I don't know about you, I find those words inspirational. They kindle in me a thirst for more poetry, uh, for the music of words, actually also for the music of music. Um, it's difficult to explain to an MOD accountant the value of a military band. Um, but the inspiration provided by stirring music is, to my mind, extraordinarily powerful. But that music has been cut along with the bands. Yet if we think only in terms of the cost of a bullet, we lose the understanding 
of the value of a military, of a military band or of a well-phrased and evocative piece of poetry. Now, I, I think that sort of thing really matters. We need to evaluate what motivates young people, what repels them from politics, what attracts them to movements like ISIL, uh, how their everyday lives are shaped and sometimes distorted by modern pressures and modern technologies like Twitter and mobile telephones, which I sometimes think my children would really like to have surgically implanted. Um, how can we develop the imaginations of our young people to look at the future, to help us with the strategic gap in core skills, including engineering, but also including poetry, to envisage and guard against the emerging threats that could, if we let them, bring our current world to a shuddering halt. I do myself believe that we can do this because I believe in human ingenuity. I believe that our ingenuity is immense, but it won't be easy, and it is urgent. Before the world vanishes in a puff of radioactive religious purity, I think we'd better get a move on. That's it. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.